Hi, I'm Mojola Mali. And I'm Blair Bigham, and this is a CMAJ podcast. So today's episode is inspired by the article in CMAJ called The Five Things to Know About Meter Dose Inhalers and Their Impact on Climate Change, or as we, you know, we should be calling it, the climate emergency. We're going to speak with one of the authors of the article, but then we're going to go a bit broader and talk about the challenges in climate emissions from healthcare. So what are you interested in looking at, Blair? So I never thought about meter dose inhalers as being sort of a big culprit for emissions. When I think about waste in healthcare, I just think about the amount of garbage that we produce, like all the packaging, all the disposable gowns, everything that just fills up garbage bins so quickly in the operating room, in the emergency department, in the ICU. I just think, man, this is nuts, the amount of things that we just throw away. Yes, yeah, so you know, that definitely was the same thing. It never occurred to me that inhalers... Well, I don't really prescribe inhalers, but it never uh, occurred to me that this is, you know, has such a big impact. Yeah, I'm totally curious to hear if this is like as easy as it sounds. Yes. And also if there's any cost changes to the patients, like if we just we're talking about equity uh, with our patients, is, does this, is this going to change that? And also, is it like something that's and this is part of my ignorance, is this something that's widely available throughout Canada for our patients also? So we're not further marginalizing the patients who are already marginalized. Absolutely. And then going a bit broader and having that conversation um, with our other guest about what are the system changes that need to be made in healthcare for us to actively be participating in reversing the climate emergency that we currently have. I was on the bus from the train station to work the other day. Or this is probably going back a few months now. But I was sitting beside this lady and her name tag said Director of Waste Management for the hospital I work at. And I said, oh, hi. And we just kind of started chatting. And she told me that we produce 18,000 pounds of garbage a day. <laughs> I was like, what? She's like, yep, every well, you're day. You're in America, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, down here we don't reuse anything. Everything goes in the garbage. Nothing gets reprocessed. It's really sad. Yeah. And so our second guest is also a surgeon. That's something that would be interesting to talk about is if we're reprocessing, what is the energy cost to reprocessing versus single waste, right? So for me, it was like when I was trying to decide between cloth and um, whatever disposable Mm -hmm. diapers, I'm like, but how much water, and first it's gross, but how much water am I going to be using to be cleaning these diapers? And then how much waste am I going to be producing into the landfill with disposable diapers. So I'm always interested in looking at it from both angle of the actual garbage, but also in terms of energy. Right. You want to make sure you're not just swapping out one bad thing for the environment for another, be it packaging or transport or production emissions. Exactly. Let's jump into it. Dr. Samantha Green is the co-author of the CMAJ article, Five Things to Know About Metered Dose Inhalers and Their Impact on Climate Change. She's a family physician at Unity Health Toronto. She's also the climate and health lead at the University of Toronto's Department of Family and Community Medicine. Hi, Samantha. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Why did you decide to focus on puffers? Great question. First of all, we know that climate change is the biggest health threat of this century. And we also know that... uh, the healthcare system contributes 4.6% of Canada's carbon emissions. So there's a lot of room for us to improve the way that we deliver care to make it more sustainable. 
a lot of work has been done uh, elsewhere to measure where those emissions come from. So we know from a measurement done in the United Kingdom at the National Health Service there that meter dose inhalers contribute about 3.1% of the entire health system's carbon emissions. One meter dose inhaler is the equivalent of driving 290 kilometers by car. Oh, wow. wow. So it's a huge hot spot and a great place for us to make some change. And what is it about a puffer that makes it so bad for the environment? Meter dose inhalers contain a propellant, um, HFC, that is about a thousand times as uh, potent as carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Oh, why are they made with that gas instead of something else? Yeah, great question. They actually used to contain a different kind of propellant uh, back in the 1990s, but that chemical actually contributed to ozone depletion. And so under the Montreal Protocol at the time, there there was a global agreement to switch away from ozone depleting uh, chemicals. And, and so there was a switch made to HFCs. And unfortunately, although HFCs do not deplete the ozone, they are this very powerful greenhouse gas. Oh, so they swapped one bad option for another bad option. Pretty much, yes. And so as an emergency doctor, I use a ton of puffers. Tell me about some of the alternatives to meter dose inhalers. What are the other options for people who have asthma or COPD at home? Sure, absolutely. So uh, dried powdered inhalers and soft mist inhalers are the alternatives. They do not contain powerful HFC propellant. And instead, the medication, of course, is inhaled into the lungs using the patient's breath. They are actually more effective and patients tend to find them easier to use for the vast majority of our patients. And actually in other countries, they are the default inhaler that's used in many countries, for example, across Europe. So they're, they're equally effective, just environmentally friendly. Is that a good way to sum it up? Yeah, equally effective for the majority of our patients. There are some patients who do better with meter dose inhalers. And, and uh, so we're not advocating that we switch every single patient to DPIs. Is there a difference in terms of technically being able to use it? Yeah. So dry powdered inhalers are actually much easier to use. And so there are studies that show patients may actually require fewer doses because the medication is actually reaching the lungs and patients tend to use them more appropriately. They also contain uh, dose counters so patients know how much medication is left in them. So they're actually recommended over meter dose inhalers in school-aged children and they're equivalent in adult patients. And so who don't they work for? Who should still stick with an MDI? Uh, so we should be prescribing an MDI with a spacer to preschoolers, to anyone with end-stage disease who can't muster enough breath to, to use a DPI, and anyone with dementia who might have trouble coordinating the use of an, a DPI. So the DPI really depends on your ability to inspire deeply and quickly? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And then I guess we have to ask about cost. Is there a cost difference between the different inhaler modes? There is. In primary care, um, what we've been recommending is that most patients who are prescribed, for example, salbutamol, could be switched to terbutaline as an equivalent short-acting beta agonist. It is slightly more expensive than salbutamol, but it's on the same order of magnitude. And then, of course, there are new asthma guidelines, the updated Canadian Thoracic Society guidelines and the new GINA guidelines, which should suggest that even patients with very mild asthma could be prescribed a combination inhaler for as-needed use. So, for example, budesonide for motorol. And that is much more expensive, like an order of magnitude more expensive. But 
as the Sigma studies have shown that using a combination inhaler is more effective to prevent asthma exacerbations. And can you basically get anything that comes in an MDI in dry powder form instead? Or are there only certain brands or only certain drugs that come in that format? Most of the inhalers come in dry powdered inhaler form. Salbutamol even comes as a discus, but it's on brand. So it's very expensive and and difficult to find. But on our website, which we mention in the article, there are a number of reference charts that people can look at to see what a reasonable switch might be for their patient from an MDI to a DPI. So are DPIs widely available in Canada, like even in more remote areas? Like, do patients have access to those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They are widely available. So this sort of sounds like a no-brainer, like low-hanging fruit. What's the catch here? Why hasn't this become more popular in Canada if it's so much better for the environment than the traditional MDIs? I just think, like anything, it's a practice change. And so there's a bit of inertia. We we all need to switch what we prescribe to our patients. And that can be quite a challenge, especially, for example... You know, myself in in family medicine, I might receive through my EMR a fax prescription renewal request for salbutamol, and it's very easy to just click renew. And to change that patient to a DPI, I mean, that requires a conversation. It requires a discussion of risks and benefits and and why I'm suggesting we make that switch. And so it, it takes some effort. I will say, though, that when I've discussed this with my patients, they're more than happy to make the switch. And most patients are actually quite disturbed when they find out the impact of a single meter dose inhaler on the environment, and they're very happy to switch to a less impactful DPI. So often, Samantha, in our podcast, we hear that family doctors need to sort of take the burden on for change, that there's more to do. How do you sort of overcome that? We're now asking one more thing of family doctors who are already overwhelmed and overworked. I think that this intervention is actually an antidote to burnout. People actually feel really good about making a difference. And it's one little thing, but to see how much of an impact you can make by making this one practice change, I think can actually be quite fulfilling and help people to providers, doctors feel good about doing at least something about the climate crisis. Samantha, you make a really strong case here for the switch. What other things might be done to make it easier for physicians or their patients to see the value in switching over and overcoming that inertia you spoke about? Yeah. um, What we've done at my clinic is we have in our EMR prescription favorites to make it easier for providers to prescribe DPIs over MDIs. And when we type in hashtag inhaler, the DPI prescriptions come up pre-populated to make it much easier to prescribe. And there are resources on our website so people can download these prescription favorites to use themselves. There's also waiting room posters that can be used and a form letter that can be sent to patients when you've received a fax renewal request for, say, a salbutamol inhaler. There's a letter you can send to your patients. But I think at, I think it requires local system change uh, within each primary care clinic, within each specialty clinic. I think it, it does require engaging in a QI process. I'm going to I'm going to give this a try on my next shift and try to switch away from MDI prescribing. And I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get all sorts of weird looks and phone calls, but <laughs> I'm going to give it a go. All right. Amazing. Samantha, thank you so much for your time. This is great information. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Samantha Green is co-author of the CMAJ article, Five Things to Know About Metered Dose Inhalers and Their Impact on Climate Change.
Dr. Andrea McNeil is a surgical oncologist at Vancouver General Hospital and BC Cancer. She's the founder of UBC's Planetary Healthcare Lab. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. McNeil. Thanks for having me, Dr. Amoli. Can you describe to us what waste you see in your practice? Yeah, I expect it's very similar to yours, Joga, being a surgeon as well, that for me, this began when I was a resident and I was quite stricken by the mountains of waste that we generate with every operation. And that prompted me to do a master's of environmental change and management to look into this. But I discovered through the course of that, that the visible waste is not really the problem. That's the tip of the iceberg that in terms of greenhouse gas emissions from healthcare consumables, up to 90% of a product's emissions mm. happen before we ever use them. So whether we throw them into a black bag or a recycling bin is really only modifying that last 10%. So that's why we can never recycle our way out of this. That's why that question makes my head explode. <laughs> um, but the mountains of waste, like I say, are really the tip of the iceberg here. So is there any like low hanging fruit or is that not even possible when we're talking about institutional healthcare waste? No, I think there is low hanging fruit. And one of the things I would encourage people to do really is think about reduction. As you can appreciate in the OR, we routinely open a lot of things that we don't use. There are sources of systematic waste. That sort of thing can be easily eliminated without in any way compromising care. There are other uh, known sources of greenhouse gas emissions, like certain types of inhalers, like certain inhaled anesthetics, that can be easily substituted for an environmentally preferable one. So there are low-hanging fruits like that, but I actually think that we are in a place where we should be thinking about systemic transformation, not the low-hanging fruit. Let's get away from the easy wins, the greenwashing, and let's go for the money. So how would we do that in the healthcare system? Well, I would suggest that we, like I said, need systemic transformation. And we have published a framework for what I call planetary health care, meaning environmentally sustainable health care. And it is predicated on three key principles. Beginning way upstream of ever being in the OR and using those consumables in the first place, we need a focus on prevention. We need to shift our goal from being a factory for the treatment of disease to a source of health and wellness, to focus on having healthy populations, health promotion, disease prevention, and good chronic disease management so that fewer people need the healthcare system or that we in general keep people's interactions with the system at their lowest level of resource intensity, which is going to their family doctor, having their cancer screening, all of those things that prevent them from developing an advanced disease that then necessitates resource-intensive treatment. We're really bad at that. All new healthcare funding seems to go into uh, very complex resource-intensive treatments that are modifying very advanced disease processes. And I would suggest that we need to shift that focus upstream and start to think, okay, could we have prevented this from ever happening? And in many cases, the answer to that is yes. What are the other two? So the second operating principle is what we call matching supply to demand. And this kind of gets back in a way to that primary care and prevention piece in that we want to match our health services 
to the problem at hand. So when you have people using the emergency department because they don't have a family doctor, or you have patients waiting in hospital for months for a long-term care placement, that's a supply and demand mismatch. So what that means is that we need to avoid both underuse of necessary health services and overuse of unnecessary services. So underuse of vaccines, for example, leads to people being in the ICU on ECMO. And you can appreciate that from a resource consumption standpoint, there's a vast difference there. Whereas within the acute care system, we actually do a lot of overuse, as I'm sure you can appreciate. There's a lot of built-in inefficiencies, redundancies, ways that we drive consumption of healthcare resources in a way that doesn't in any way add value to patients' care. Okay, and so what is the final principle? Yeah. So once we have prevented as much disease as we can and then appropriately constructed and funded our system to address that, then we can really focus on decarbonizing health services so that in the appropriate treatment of people's disease, we do that in a low carbon, low material use way. I feel like all I ever hear about at work is this phase, sort of the third phase here, the decarbonization. People are always talking about making sure that your waste goes in the right bin and talking about if they should incinerate or if they should do other things with the waste. How did we sort of get so far off track where that focus is just on this mountain of garbage? How do we get people to think kind of more upstream the way you've described? I kind of wish I had an answer to that. (laughs) In a way, our undue focus at the end of the line in terms of environmental impacts simply mirrors our undue focus on end of the line treatments in terms of how we construct and fund our system. So I think this is some sort of innate part of human nature and thinking to only want to deal with the problem that is immediately in front of us, which is this cancer that I have to treat right now and not to think about all the other people who have cancer now or who will develop it in future and how can I modify any of the steps in that process so that those patients don't end up in front of me. Andrea, I don't want to have people feel like they're no longer empowered because these other interventions, the day-to-day stuff is less valuable. I mean, there's hundreds of people employed in hospitals whose job it is just to make sure that we manage our waste a little bit better. But how can we sort of inspire those people to take it that next step? Yes, I in no way want to suggest that we must solely focus on prevention by any stretch. I guess what I want to suggest is that there's an opportunity to rethink how we deliver healthcare in a way that's better for patients and for the planet. And I can give some examples of that to your previous question, Blair, but what does that decarbonization piece look like? Things like regional anesthesia, for example, which means not putting people to sleep for their surgery or in addition to putting people to sleep, blocking the nerves that supply the area you're going to operate on. There has been an uptake in regional anesthesia throughout the pandemic because it avoids the generation of aerosols. So COVID was the motivation for this in many cases, but it provides better analgesia, minimizes things like postoperative nausea and vomiting, accelerates people's recovery. Patient satisfaction scores are through the roof with with regional. Patients love it. Their experience is improved and it dramatically decreases the emissions associated with the administration of anesthesia because in many cases it avoids the need for inhaled agents altogether. So that is one simple example of the way 
something we can do very much within existing resources and existing systems can not only minimize our carbon footprint and decarbonize the administration of anesthesia and surgery, but also improve the value and, and uh, experience of that surgery for patients. So just to pivot a little bit, um, the NHS in England, they have a very ambitious approach to tackling emissions. What are they doing and could something like that be replicated here in Canada? It absolutely could. And we certainly look to them for leadership in this and want to leverage their success for similar initiatives here. The NHS has committed to decarbonizing by 2045 with some intermediate targets and timelines along the way. Uh, they have an ambitious supply chain strategy, recognizing that that is the source of most emissions. They're essentially demanding that their vendors match the NHS's ambition of their climate targets. So by 2030, in order for a vendor to sell something to the NHS, they have to have committed to decarbonizing as well within that same time frame. So we will all benefit from that. I mean, the medical device industry is a global industry. These are the same vendors that we're purchasing from. So the NHS leadership in this is going to really shift the dial for all of us. Awesome. Mm. And it sounds like all of these things will not just be better for the environment, but it'll be better for our patients, which is our ultimate goal as healthcare providers. What are the obstacles that are stopping us from being able to do that? People are strangely wed to the status quo. And I think that stems from a belief that the way we have always done things is because it was somehow better, like that we did rigorous studies that showed that general anesthesia is the best way to deliver surgery, and we should not deviate from that. It has actually astonished me to see some of the innovations that have come out of the pandemic that have defined a better way forward for patients, for the system, for the planet. And now that one could argue the pandemic is waning. There is a conversation around, great, we get to go back to the way things were. <laughs> it just kind of blows my mind. Like, hold the phone. We, we know how to do this better now. But there is this strange, like I say, affinity for the status quo that I think is from a belief that that was carefully crafted according to some master plan, and it was not. <laughs> and I think the other major barrier has to do with our training as scientists, so the reductionist thinking that goes into isolating a single variable, controlling for it and studying it, which is reinforced in our quality improvement training with things like PDSA cycles that lead us to believe that these issues exist in isolation and therefore in competition. So I frequently hear, well, we don't, we can't focus on sustainability because, you know, somehow that would detract from patient care or it's at odds with whatever else we want to do at the same time. And I think it is absolutely imperative that people recognize that these are not competing priorities. They're actually quite synergistic, that we can define a path forward that offers better patient care, better experience, typically lower costs, a greatly reduced environmental impact, better equity access. I mean, the list goes on the escalating levels of social value creation that can come from an intentionally designed system. So as I'm listening to this, I'm inspired. So if there are other physicians who are inspired and maybe they work in the hospital setting, what can they do if they want to go to the organization and say, OK, you know what? I just listened to a great podcast and I want to institute some changes. What can they do? Well, first of all, I would suggest that they get connected to Cascades, which is an emerging pan-Canadian network 
that's meant to be a knowledge mobilization network to accelerate the uptake of best practices within sustainable healthcare and to facilitate clinicians or institutions implementing these things at scale. So we have constructed this network to help people do that. So go to Cascades, get plugged in. There's an entire community of people who want to do this and who can help you do it. The second thing I would suggest is really to go to the top, to understand the leadership and governance of your organization and to start by trying to embed planetary health or environmental sustainability as an institutional priority rather than starting with a kind of grassroots volunteer green team, as they're often called, or committee, where your your remit will be limited. The state of the climate and ecological crisis is such that health leaders need to be stepping up and taking a leadership role. And by engaging your senior leadership, that will facilitate action throughout the organization and really amplify and and accelerate your impact. That's a great call to action. Andrew, is there more people like you? Like you're like the first person I ever heard of that's a surgeon who has a master's in environmental something. Are there more people like you? Yeah, there's a lot of people like me. The healthcare community is crying out for this kind of change, which I think you you totally get that we've been asked to live differently at work than we do at home and to be incredibly wasteful and just throw things out that are unused where you can see there's retained value and we just discard that. There's a lot of moral distress over the broader climate and ecological crisis and over the way that we are forced to practice as clinicians. And people are starting to say, not okay anymore. Do better. Thank you so much, Andrea. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Joanne Blair. Dr. Andrea McNeil is a surgical oncologist at Vancouver General Hospital in BC Cancer. She's the founder of UBC's Planetary Healthcare Lab. Well, apparently the 18,000 pounds of garbage a day isn't the issue. (laughs) No, but it does matter, right? Right, right. But it does matter because it's not about recycling that much waste. It's about how do we stop generating? It's about going upstream. Yeah, it's like, what? how do we stop generating that much waste? Yeah, and I just feel like all the focus is always on what do we do with all this waste? And that nobody ever said, well, wait a minute, how did we get all this waste to begin with? This has been such an eye-opening episode. Mind-blowing. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that I've been wrong for years and years and years about my uh, approach to planetary health and the environment. Uh, this idea that sort of dealing with all of our carbon production is sort of just the the end of the road um, is like really eye opening for me. But I think Andrea is totally right. We have all of this waste in healthcare that is being produced because we have to deliver healthcare. And why do we have to deliver healthcare? Because we didn't prevent the disease to begin with. That's really eye-opening for me. Me too. I think I'm left with the more episodes we do on the podcast, even the ones that are, you know, very textbook medicine, that at the end of the day, if we are not addressing social determinants of health, we're not like that should be the main pillar of healthcare is to actually Absolutely going upstream. Yeah. And like preventative health and we don't spend enough time learning about that in medical school. And, you know, I chose surgery, so I don't spend a lot of time preventing um, um, <laughs> health issues. But it really is eye opening that like a lot of our problems in society and also when we talk about the planet could be solved if we prevent disease. Absolutely. I only worry about sort of coming up with that conclusion because it seems so 
pie in the sky. And like, what do we do about that as like an ER doc and a surgeon? What do we do to actually address all of these upstream issues? And it sounds like Andrea sort of has dedicated a huge amount of time to figuring out how individuals can contribute to the collective and help organizations slowly shift that culture. Well, I think investing more in people having family doctors is a huge part of it. Family doctors are the bedrock of our healthcare system and we don't pay them well. (laughs) We don't treat them well. And if we actually make it a career that they feel that they're rewarded, that's going to benefit our patients. And that's also going to benefit our planet because if we can prevent disease, we, a lot of our downstream problems would be solved. Absolutely. And I feel like the pandemic has, has shown firsthand how much value family doctors add to the system because when so many clinics had trouble seeing patients because of the pandemic, we really saw that over-reliance on more expensive parts of the healthcare system, like having more advanced disease, like needing emergency departments, like needing to go to the ICU because you didn't have information about the vaccine that you needed, that a lot of the time family doctors, because they have that longitudinal relationship with people, they're they're really effective at getting behavioral changes. Whereas, I mean, when I talk to someone in the emergency department about quitting smoking, like they don't know me, I don't know them, I'm not going to be effective. But it's the family doctors who really hold that key, that trust that patients have with that longitudinal relationship to stay healthy and not end up requiring expensive mm-hmm. and highly carbon producing healthcare. I left actually feeling very invigorated uh, in terms of what actionable change I can make. When she mentioned the one about regional anesthesia, I never thought of it from the point perspective of um, the planet. And so that has really left me thinking, okay, this is something that I would like to bring to my um, hospital organization of, I think it is cost saving and at the same time, it is good for the planet and it's good for our patients. So it's a win-win all around. And even simple things like switching to a dry powder inhaler instead of uh, our current puffers. You know, it's those small actions that can make you feel like you're at least part of the solution and not part of the problem. 100%. Feel free to check out the show notes for a link to some of the things that we talked about today with our fabulous guests. And please do share the podcast. It's the best way to get information out there so that we can spread the word. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Dr. Majolo Mali. Until next time, be well. <laughs>